Okay, 6th Avenue, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to the book of Judges. If you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, you're welcome to take it home with you and read it there. We're going to be on page 211. Kids, if you don't have one, we have sermon notes over here for you. So if you want to run up and grab one real quick so you can take notes and follow along with me as I'm preaching, you're welcome to do that, okay? Also, if maybe you didn't hear during the announcement portion of our service about silencing your cell phone, eh, you, you can do it even now if you want to. Even now. <clears throat> in my introductory uh, sermon to the series that we've been going through in the book of Judges, I told us that the book of Judges would be cyclical in nature. I told us that one cycle would be that of Israel, descending down, down, down into the black abyss of sin and idolatry. But I also told you that we would see a second cycle, the cycle of the Judges themselves. This cycle of descent as the, but as the book of Judges progresses, shows us that each judge is more compromised than the last. Each person who's raised up to save the people from their sins is struggling with their own sin. In this morning's text, in Judges 11, we are going to encounter the worst judge yet. We're going to encounter Jephthah, the second to last judge of Israel. Jephthah is not a judge in the traditional sense. The text does not say or really even indicate in any way that God raises up Jephthah to the position of judge. The text does say, however, that the Spirit of the Lord clothes Jephthah as if to say God didn't choose him, but he's here and so God will use him. So who is this Jephthah character? Well, in Jephthah we find a man who is part politician, part mercenary. In Jephthah, we see a man who has been more influenced by the world than by the Word of God, which leads him to commit perhaps one of the most terrible sins in all of Scripture, the sacrifice of his only daughter. And yet, we are going to see that God uses Jephthah to accomplish his good purposes. So, We're going to examine the life of Jephthah together by walking through Judges 11, bit by bit, verse by verse. So let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we ask for your help this morning. Sometimes when we gather together as a church, it feels like everything is going perfectly. It feels like everyone is locked in and focused. It feels like the people who are behind the podium are saying everything as well as they can. We're singing as loud as we can. We're praying as attentively as we can. And some mornings it may not feel like that. We can feel distracted. Children may be moving in the pews around us. We've had a fight with our spouse on the way into church. We're wrestling with sin. But God, your ability to do us good this morning is not dependent on how well we perform. Your ability to do us good this morning is wholly dependent on you. And you are powerful, all-powerful. You are loving, completely loving. And you have made a promise to us that you will love us and do us good. And so we claim that promise now as we dig into your word. 
Be with us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I've got six points for you in this morning's sermon. Note takers, six points, okay? Here they are. Jephthah was, that's kind of the, the, the header, Jephthah was, point number one, conceived in sin. Point number two, despised by blood. Point number three, trained in violence. Point number four, skilled in diplomacy. And point number five, influenced by the world. And you can uh, get those if you missed them on the first pass as we walk through the sermon together. So let's look at point number one. Jephthah was conceived in sin. In the summer of 1969, Charles Manson, the charismatic leader of the Manson family commune, initiated a home invasion in the Hollywood Hills that led to the deaths of five people, including the pregnant wife of the famous director, Roman Polanski, and an heiress of the Folgers Coffee Fortune. Now, 35 years before that tragic night, Manson was born to one Kathleen Maddox, a prostitute in the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. Manson's early life was as unpleasant as his birth. One of his biographers tells us the story that as an infant, Manson's mother was happy to sell him to the patron at a local bar. The price for young Charlie Manson? A pitcher of beer. Being born into tragic circumstances does not necessarily seal one's fate. Take me, for example. I was born to, you know the story, a drug addict mother, an unknown father. I was abused most of my young life. And yet, I stand here before you today. Husband, father, pastor, upright citizen. Sadly, however, stories like mine are not common. Broken beginnings, they're really hard to overcome. The story of Jephthah is the story of broken beginnings. In verse 1, we see that Jephthah, like Manson, was born to a prostitute mother. Look there. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Hmm. Now, as tragic as it may be to be born to a prostitute, this tragedy of Jephthah's early life is only compounded by the fact that Jephthah's father had a wife and a family. Jephthah was not the son of some random John who just happened to visit a prostitute, but rather he was born into an intact family unit where the father was unfaithful to the mother, where the husband was unfaithful to the wife. And this sin corrupted the family from the top down. Now, Jephthah's father, Gilead, was a man of carnal passions who disregarded the sacred vows of marriage and the special bonds of family. Which leads me to point number two. Jephthah was despised by blood. Look at verse two. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So, here we see the drama unfolding. Right? We, we see that Gilead's wife had many other children, and these children despised Jephthah as their illegitimate 
son of a whore, half-brother. The family dynamic was such that there was no grace for Jephthah. There was no love for Jephthah. His brothers drove him not only out of the house, but also out of the land. Why? Because they didn't want to have to fight over the inheritance. How many brothers did Jephthah have? We don't know, but we know that whenever you're fighting over an inheritance, one less brother is all the better. Now, in verse 2, it says that Jephthah's brothers drove him out of his father's house. But in verse 7, we see that it was the elders who drove him away. Look at verse 7 real quick. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Since Jephthah's father is called Gilead and he's from the land of Gilead, we can reasonably conclude that Jephthah's family was the ruling family of the region. So the brothers that drove him out were probably the men who were leading that region. They were probably the elders. Which means that they were not only trying to keep him from getting access to the inheritance, but also access to the throne of sorts. Now, the next thing that we learn about Jephthah is point number three, that he is trained in violence. Trained in violence. We saw that in verse number one. It says, Now, the, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Was he a mighty warrior by his very nature? Did he just kind of come out of the womb swinging? Or was he trained for war in his father's house? Or was it some mixture thereof, you know, kind of a naturally aggressive personality, kind of well-built and then trained up to be a fighter? We don't really know. But we do know that he was run out of town by his brothers and that he came to replace his blood brothers with brothers in crime. Look at verse 3. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. This phrase, worthless fellows, should draw our attention back to Abimelech. Do you remember Abimelech? When he challenged his, his siblings for the throne and he killed all of them one by one, systematically on a stone, he was only able to do that because he went out and hired Worthless fellows, the same phrase is used there. So here's the deal. Jephthah is the illegitimate son of a powerful man in a family of great means. His brothers hate him. They run him out of town. And so he flees to Tob. Where is Tob? I'm not sure. But when he gets to Tob, he kind of forms the ancient Near Eastern version of a crime syndicate. And apparently he's the head of the operation because the language of the text says that they gathered around him. He was the head. He was the one who was running the show. He was the the godfather, the, the Tony Soprano of the bunch. And then a little time passes. How much time? I don't know. How long was he in Tob? I don't know. How long were they doing highway robberies? Not sure. But then in verses four through six, we find that Israel is preparing for war with the people known as the Ammonites. And there's only one problem for the people of Israel, and it's a big problem. They don't have a leader. Let's look there, verses 4 through 6. After a time, 
the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. I don't know how skilled Jephthah was in war before he went to Tob, but it seems like his time in exile must have served him well. He must have developed a reputation of being able to lead people in an execution of violence to accomplish particular ends. As I was reading the text this week, I kind of imagined Osama bin Laden in the hills of Pakistan, you know, training with the rest of his Al-Qaeda fighters. That might have been what they looked like. They had their own rugged camp. They were a mercenary squad. And the elders of Gilead, for whatever reason, in God's providence, they don't have a leader. So what do they do? They go to the guy who think can do the most good with his skill in violence. They go to Jephthah. Which leads me to point number four. Jephthah was hungry for power. Look at verses 7 through 11. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Here's a little summary of these verses, okay? Jephthah speaks. He says, hey, you know, you guys used to hate me, right? Didn't, didn't, remember when you said that? Remember? You said I wasn't worthy, remember? How my mom was a prostitute? You threw that in my face? And look at you now, standing here before me, hat in hand, asking me to come use my skills to save you. And the elders of Gilead respond, and they say, yes, actually, that's exactly what happened. You'll notice that there's no apology here. Now, they say to Jephthah, will you please come lead us? If you do, we will make you our leader. That's what it means to be the head. It means to have authority over. And then Jephthah responds, and he says two things in particular that I really want to draw your attention to. The first thing that he says is, he says, when you bring me home. You have to remember, Jephthah's been exiled in Tob. And even though these people who ran this place ran him out of town and sent him into exile, he still views the land of Gilead as his home. He still views these people as his people. He views that place as his place. And so one might hope, one might expect that since his heart is still connected to this land, even though a great injustice has been done against him, that because he loves his people in this place, that he might forgive, that he might exercise some magnanimity and return home graciously, leading his people in their time of need. Yes, you sinned against me, but none of that matters now. I'm here, and I'm going to save you. That would be a good disposition. Unfortunately, it's not the disposition that 
Jephthah displays in this conversation, which leads me to the second thing that I want you to see. Jephthah says, I'll come home under one condition, that I rule over you. What we have here, friends, is a mercenary. A mercenary who wants to parlay his skilled violence into political power. Which naturally leads us into point number five. Jephthah is skilled in diplomacy. Skilled in diplomacy. I want us to see that Jephthah is a very shrewd diplomat. You can see that in three ways in this text. The first way that you can see it is in the way he just gathers men around himself in Tob. You know, listen, even if you're the strongest, scariest, most violent guy in the group, you cannot hold a group of people together as a leader unless you have some kind of skill in leading people. I know a lot of men who think that they would be good leaders, and yet no one wants to follow them, and so they're not. He's the kind of man that men are willing to follow. Secondly, you see this in the way that he parlays this national distress into personal power. That's the mark of a shrewd diplomat. I'm going to take advantage of this crisis moment for the sake of my own authority, the increase thereof. And then finally, we're going to see that he's a shrewd diplomat in his interaction with the Ammonite king. You remember, of course, that the reason why Jephthah has been called out from Tob is due to this military conflict that's happening with the Ammonites. The Ammonites are at the door. What are we going to do? Well, let's see what Jephthah does. The first thing that he does is he tries to reason with the king of the Ammonites. Just because Jephthah's a skilled warrior doesn't mean that he's not razor sharp in his reasoning. I think we see a lot of, a lot of clarity, a lot of logic from Jephthah here as he interacts with the king of the Ammonites. So, in the following verses, Jephthah employs a threefold argument. Okay, so if you're taking notes, this, this is your subpoints right here. He employs a threefold argument against the king of the Ammonites to try to stave off war. The first argument is his historical argument. You can see that in verses 11 and 12. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? Well, he he continues, And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore I restore it peaceably. The first thing that Jephthah does is he sends this emissary to the king, And the first thing that he wants to know from the king is, why are you doing this? Why are you waging war against our people? And the king responds with a very specific claim, a claim of historic injustice. He says, you stole this land from our people when you came up out of Egypt. And then Jephthah responds with some pretty forceful logic. Go back to the text. Verse 14 Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. 
So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and they arrived to the east side of the land of Moab, and they camped out on the side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Are you guys riveted? Let's keep going. If you, like, contain your excitement. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now listen to that. King of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz. That's a military term. They encamped there for war, and they fought with Israel. And the Lord God of Israel gave Sihon and all the people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. Here's the argument. You guys are saying we stole land from you, but we didn't even get any land from you. Jephthah recounts the story of how Israel came up out of the land of Egypt and they went through the desert and upon entering into the promised land, they had a couple encounters with a couple of different people. And I tried to get in this way and the people said no and I tried to get in that way and the people said no. Finally, we went around, wait, to the east, for you guys, east. We went around, right? And then when we got there, the Amorites tried to fight with us. And we won, praise God. And then when we won, we took their land because, you know, they tried to kill us. And so his whole argument here is, you, the king of the Ammonites, think we took your land, but we didn't. We took the land of the Amorites. He knows his history. And he's also not pleased that the king of the Ammonites is here trying to pick a fight with Israel on trumped-up charges. The second argument is theological, and you're going to like this one. It's super quick. You ready? Look at verse 23. So then, the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Basically, his argument is this. God gave us this land. All right. His third argument is a legal argument. Look at verse 25. So we have the historical, the theological, and now the legal in verse 25. Now, are you any better than Balak? the son of Zippor, king of Moab, did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? Here's what he's saying there. And uh, I know that you guys probably want a little bit more knowledge about Balak, the son of Zippor, but let me just say what I need to say and move on. Uh, he's making an argument from precedent. He's saying, you know, uh, Balak never challenged us. And if there was anyone who would ever really have a reason to challenge us about land, it would probably be Balak, the son of Zippor, but he didn't, and so, you know, you're no Balak, and so if he didn't, you really shouldn't. That's the essence of his argument. Now, look at verses 27 and 28. I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So, in verse 28 we see the king of Ammon did not listen to any of Jephthah's arguments. He had three arguments. They were good ones. The king rejected them. That's the way it is sometimes. Two parties both state their case. 
And ultimately, the Lord must be the arbiter. Now, at first glance, it may seem like Jephthah is trusting the Lord with this declaration when he says, we'll just let Yahweh decide. That sounds like the language of faith, right? God sees all, God knows all, and he's perfectly good, and so I'm going to trust him to do what's right. He's going to fix this because we're at loggerheads. That sounds like the language of faith. So what are we to make of Jephthah's faith? Well, look at verses 29 through 35. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. So far, all is well. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minnith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with great blow. Excuse me, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Wow, this is good news. He won. He made a vow before the Lord, and the Lord gave him victory. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And the rest of the tragic tale is that Jephthah offers his daughter up as a human sacrifice to the Lord. Which leads us right into point number six. Jephthah was more influenced by the world than the word. Jephthah was more influenced by the world than the word. Can God be bribed? Uh, maybe another question would be, does God need to be enticed to act on behalf of his people? Does he require incantations or vows? Does he want you to take a vow so that he will be moved to take action on your behalf to do you good? Well, Jephthah certainly seemed to think that this was the case. This was his understanding of God. But why did Jephthah think of God in this way? Well, you have to remember the world in which Jephthah inhabited, the most common way that people thought about the gods in the ancient world was that they needed to be manipulated. They thought that the deities needed to be moved to action, stimulated, enticed. Do you guys remember we saw this earlier with the Baal and the Asherah? Right? The Baal and the Asherah were the male and female deities in the land of Canaan, and they would have the altars set up all over the land, and they would have a male and female go and copulate in front of the altar. And this was a way of kind of trying to get Baal and Asherah to, to move on behalf of the people. To, to give rain and good soil and strong crops. This is the view of God that it seems like Jephthah has come to adopt. God, I need victory. 
And the only way I can really believe you're going to give me victory is if I take a vow. Jephthah thinks that God is the kind of God who acts on a quid pro quo basis. If I do this, then God will do that. And so Jephthah makes a very foolish vow to Yahweh. A very foolish vow in order to secure victory over the Ammonites. So here's a a question worth considering. How did Jephthah, the Israelite, come to think of God like this? How is it that he came to adopt the worship practices and the ethics of his pagan neighbors? Well, there are a lot of kind of very specific answers, like, for example, where he was in Tob, it was probably on the fringes of Israel, and maybe there were more Canaanites there, and he was probably angry with his family for how they treated him, and he'd probably be inclined to listen to the Canaanite priests when they talked to him. We could talk about that, some of those specifics. But I'm, I'm not talking about specifically how did this happen. I'm, I'm asking principially how did this happen. And I think the answer is simple. It happened through osmosis. Osmosis is what happens when a substance diffuses through a semi-permeable membrane, typically from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration. You guys tracking? I had to look, I had to look up uh, the definition on the internet. And also this illustration I'm about to give you. If, if the scientific mumbo-jumbo didn't make sense, uh, think about a raisin, right? A raisin is a dehydrated grape, so it's sitting there, not very much moisture. You put a raisin in a glass of water, right? The raisin inside of itself has a low concentration of moisture. The water outside of it has an area, uh, has a high concentration of moisture. And so the water will pass from the area of high concentration in the glass to the low concentration inside the raisin, and the raisin will rehydrate. That's osmosis. Why am I talking about this? Here's the point. God's people are always, they always have been, they always will be, like a dry raisin surrounded by water. God's people are holy. We are set apart, but we still live in a world that is pressurized by sin, right? This fallen world is applying tremendous pressure on us from every angle, and the walls of the church are porous. The, the, the holiness that separates God's people from the world, that wall, that boundary is a porous boundary. It's a semi-permeable membrane, which means that the worldview of the nations, including their view of God, will always seep in through our pores if we are not careful. In the account of Jephthah's vow, we see a man whose idea of God has been shaped more by the world than by the word. And you see it in two ways, really. You see it in his taking of the vow and in his keeping of the vow. Let's look at those in turn. You see that Jephthah does not understand the nature and character of God and the fact that he takes this vow in the first place. I'm going to try not to get into the mumbo-jumbo, the technical language, but uh, the scholars agree that the language that Jephthah uses here is very obviously demonstrating that Jephthah was going to offer a human sacrifice. Some people who are a little ashamed of the story of Jephthah, they don't want it in the Bible. It couldn't be that, you know. They try to say, no, he wasn't intending to offer a sacrifice to his daughter. It could have been an animal that he was hoping to sacrifice. 
That just seems entirely unlikely. It seems like Jephthah was offering or willing to offer a human sacrifice to God. Okay? But we also have to ask ourselves, like, where did he get this idea to offer a human sacrifice in the first place? Well, he got it from the pagan peoples around him. He didn't get it from God's word. This is what God's word has to say. And you should know this comes from Deuteronomy. You'll remember that Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. Second law, Deuteronomos. Okay? It's what God gives to the people just one more time before they go into the promised land. Just to make sure, in case you didn't hear me the first time I said it, you're really going to get it this time. And one of the last things that God has to say to his people before they go into the promised land has to do with human sacrifice. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 12. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. You see, God knew that the world, the surrounding nations would influence his people for evil when they got into the promised land. He understood the spiritual osmosis that could take place. So he lovingly warns them about it. This is like a dad who tells his daughter when she's getting ready to go to the school dance, hey honey, uh, when you get to the dance, they're going to try to get you to drink alcohol. Now that's like a 1950s version of this illustration. I don't know what they would offer you today. But They're going to try to get you to do things that you know you shouldn't do, so be careful. Don't let them influence you. Listen to how God feels about child sacrifice. This is from Leviticus chapter 20. He says, Any one of the people of Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch, and Moloch was the God who required appeasement through child sacrifice, any one of these people shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among the people, him and all who follow him and whoring after Moloch. So uh, I don't think God could be any clearer. He thinks that the person who's done this deed is in sin and the people who just kind of stand around and let it happen are in sin. This is how God feels about human sacrifice. It is an abomination. And Jephthah, he would have heard these things. These words of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he would have known them growing up in Israel. Yet he was not influenced by the word that he heard. He was influenced by the world. The second way that we see Jephthah not understanding the nature and character of God is in his keeping of the vow. His keeping of the vow. After the battle was over, when Jephthah made his way home, when he saw his loving, beautiful, innocent daughter walk out the door to greet him with great joy, he could have chosen not to follow through on the vow. 
but he can't bring himself to break the vow. He says, I can't. I have to do this. Which is crazy because in God's word, in Leviticus 27, you can go read about it later, God makes a provision for his people when they make foolish or hasty vows. Leviticus 27 is all about what to do if you've made a dumb vow and you need to back out of it. This is how you do it without breaking your word to the Lord. But Jephthah seems to be ignorant of Leviticus 27. Jephthah feels like it would be dishonorable somehow to break his vow to God. Why would he think that? Because he's ignorant of the nature and character of God. The same view of God that leads him to make the vow leads him to keep the vow. It's a mechanistic view of God. It's a transactional view of God. It's a view of God that says, God, you only did this for me because I did that. It's the view of God that's still alive and well in prosperity churches today. It's the view of God that's still alive in a legalistic church today, which says, God, I know you only do good to me if I comport myself with absolute moral perfection. And it's a wrong view of God. A relational view of God, on the other hand, a, 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 relation, a view of God rooted and grounded in, in God's mercy and his grace would have led Jephthah to realize that God doesn't need his sacrifice. God is in his very nature without need. Psalm 51 says this, speaking of God, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. It seems like the psalmist has a category for the nature and character of God that says, even though technically this should be the thing that I should do, offer you a sacrifice, there's something about the way that I'm going to offer the sacrifice that means you won't accept it. Consider the words of Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As much as in obedience to his voice? Behold, obedience is better than sacrifice, and attentiveness is better than the fat of rams. What would God want from Jephthah when he comes back from the battle? What does God want? How does God want Jephthah to respond to his grace? You know, an animal sacrifice? Maybe. But obedience to his word primarily and his word is clear we don't offer up humans what we have here friends is a conflict of visions god has clearly said in his word what his vision is he hates human sacrifice that's his vision of ethics and pure worship and then there's jephthah's vision his vision of ethics and worship is that he must keep his promises no matter what even if it will result in great evil and terrible tragedy. Now, to help us understand the choice that's before Jephthah today, do I break the vow, that's a sin, or do I sacrifice my daughter, an even greater sin? Consider this analogy. Let's say there's a man who unlawfully divorces his wife. Maybe they've married a year, five years, 20 years, doesn't matter. He, he unlawfully divorces her. Then he goes and marries another woman. He, he remains married to this woman for, who knows, two years, five years, ten years. Maybe they even have kids together. They start a new family and a new life. Now, at some point, this man becomes a Christian. 
And after he becomes a Christian, someone starts to disciple him, and they start asking him questions about his life, and he says, oh yeah, I divorced my wife. And they start to dig into the details, and somebody lets him know, hey, just so you know, that was really sinful. You should not have done that. And his heart's broken. He's contrite. You're right. I messed up. I should not have done that. What would be the appropriate response to this information for this husband? Would the, would the appropriate response be for him to divorce his current wife and to abandon his new children, to go back and be with his first wife and keep his first promise? No. No, that would only compound the sin, you see. In the same way, the, the right response of Jephthah here would not be to remain faithful to his initial wicked promise, but rather to see his daughter walk out that door and to realize the utter folly of his first vow. To repent and accept that his vow was foolish and sinful, but by no means compound the evil of his vow with the evil of child sacrifice. But Jephthah can't do it. And I think one of the reasons why Jephthah can't do it is because of how hungry for power he is. In Jephthah's mind, the reason why he had the victory and therefore has the authority is because he made this vow. And so if he doesn't keep his vow, he thinks that God will kind of take it all back. God will send the Ammonites back in. And if he doesn't win the war against the Ammonites, the Israelites won't want him to be their ruler. If only he knew the beautiful truth of Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than sacrifice. As we wrap up this part of the sermon, this exposition, getting to see the life of Jephthah, I want us to consider uh, this illustration. When, whenever someone loses a lot of blood, they go into something called hypovolemic shock. Okay? Hypovolemic shock is what happens when someone doesn't have enough blood in their body. You know, There's not enough blood pressurizing the circulatory system, hypo, low, volemic, volume, low volume. And it's a, it's a sure indicator that, that this person has lost so much blood that they're about to die, okay? Now, one of the indicators of hypovolemic shock is something called narrowing pulse pressures. So if you go and you take your blood pressure at like Rite Aid or CVS, right, you'll see that your blood pressure always has a higher number up top and a lower number on the bottom. And it should always be that way. Whenever you experience narrowing pulse pressures, the number up top begins to drop down, 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 down until it's very close to the low number on the bottom. That means that you are going into shock and you're going to die soon. Similarly, one of the signs that Israel is on the verge of death is that their judges, their saviors, the ones who are supposed to rescue them from their idolatry and wickedness, there is a narrowing of the gap they're supposed to be rescuing the people from their evil, and yet they are evil themselves. And you see, with each passing judge, the gap diminishes, diminishes, diminishes. And now as we get to Jephthah, the gap is as low as it can possibly be. The judge who is supposed to lead Israel out of their mess is as influenced by idols as the people themselves. Okay, that's the story of Jephthah. Part one. Part two is coming next week. 
Now let's talk about some application. Application point number one. Discipleship matters. Discipleship matters. In our last point, we said that the fundamental issue for Jephthah was that he had adopted an unbiblical view of God. But let's be clear, it's not entirely his fault. Right? Let me ask you a question. Where does our formation of God come from? Like, our, how we view God, where, where, do, where does that, where's that built? Where does that happen? Where should it happen? Well, primarily in the home. You should learn about who God is, his nature and, characters, uh, his nature and character, primarily from your parents and your home. And we wouldn't be wrong to think that Jephthah's toxic family failed to train him up in the ways of the Lord. You know, a dad who's out busy visiting prostitutes is probably not going to be the same dad that's going to sit you down and lead you in family worship. Earlier in the service, we read Deuteronomy 6. I want us to turn back there again real quick. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. So we see here, God is saying, listen, the reason why I'm giving you these rules, the reason why I'm telling you these commandments is because I love you. When you go into the land, I want it to go well with you. And what I want you to do is I want you to teach this to your children. And then I want your children to teach this to their children so that it doesn't just go well with you when you, right when you get into the land, but that it stays well with you. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see, friends, the command that God has for his people primarily, the very first thing he wants to get out of the way is that we love him. You see that? And then after he says, you're supposed to love me with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Jephthah should have received better from his parents. The Lord God had specifically commanded the Israelites to do a better job of training their people than the pagans did. Jephthah was supposed to receive an education in the scriptures. He was supposed to be taught diligently about the nature and character of God. But that did not happen. Now what's really surprising about this is that Jephthah apparently knew the scriptures. Right? When he gets into that dispute with the Ammonite king, he's able to recount the entire history of salvation 
we went here, we did that, and then we went there, and then that happened, and then we went around, and then the third thing happened. I mean, he knows it. But he doesn't know it. Parents, this is really important. It can be so easy for us to raise up little Pharisees in the church, to raise up little Jephthahs, right? Your little Johnny, your little Susie, doing all the scripture memorization, right? They can tell you the whole Bible project, you know, each scene, and they can do it all in a row. Their Awana's crowns can be completely full. They can know a lot of information about the Bible and yet not know the God of the Bible. That's been the testimony that I've heard. When I got to this church, I started just asking people, hey, what's your testimony? How did you come to know the Lord? I still ask that question. And one of the most common things that I hear is, yeah, I grew up in the church and I knew the Bible front to back. I could tell you all the stories. But I didn't know God. I didn't know the gospel. It wasn't until later in life when, insert youth pastor, somebody on campus at your college, I joined this new church where somebody said it in a way I'd never heard before. Somebody comes in and intervenes and actually teaches you the Deuteronomy 6 kind of discipleship. Not just to know stuff about God, but to know God, to love God. Now, let's be clear, uh, this is, in part, the, the tragedy of Jephthah and the sacrifice. It is, uh, his parents have to bear the weight of responsibility. But at the end of the day, they can't bear all the responsibility. At the end of the day, Jephthah is still a moral actor. He still has to accept responsibility for what he did. All of us have a thousand reasons to fail. All of us can come up with this, that, or the third excuse as to why we don't X, Y, Z. But at the end of the day, none of that matters. At the end of the day, we have to stand before the Lord and give an account. Same thing is true of Jephthah. But I want you to know that by God's grace, you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances. By God's grace, even if you came up in a terrible home where your parents never loved you and never cared for you and never taught you the Bible, or if you grew up in a legalistic home where that's all they did, but they never actually did it the right way, none of that matters. God is graciously offering you the truth of his word, his nature and character, his gospel today. You are here today. Even if for the, your entire life leading up to today, you never heard anything about the nature and character of God and you never understood the gospel Today you have heard it, and today you can make a choice. Application point number two, history versus ethics. Guys, this one's going to be quick. Jephthah knew the history of Scripture, but not the ethics of Scripture, okay? He knew the history of Israel, but not the ethics of Yahweh. You know, we don't offer human sacrifices, We live in a day where many Christians have a renewed interest in history, particularly church history, and even more specifically, uh, American church history. And I think that's good as a lover of history, a reader of history, as someone who kind of cringes when people say silly things because they don't know history, right? Like, I think that's a good thing that we have this renewed interest. But there is a trend among some students of Christian history to, to assume that a knowledge of church history equates to a robust understanding of Christian ethics. It does not. Just because you know the history of the church does not mean that you know the ethics of God. That's a very niche application point. If you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Sean. Don't worry, this next one's going to be better. Application point number three. 
blind spots. We can't deny that Jephthah was used powerfully by the Lord. He was clothed with the Spirit of God, used to rescue the people of God. And yet he had this tremendous blind spot. Tremendous. The darkened worldview of the pagan nations had come to shape Jephthah's understanding of God and worship and ethics. And as, as we read the story, I think we should be led to consider in all humility what blind spots we may have. In what ways may the world be darkening the light of the truth of God's word in our eyes? So just consider the categories. Family, politics, authority, sexuality, children, the body, vocation. You just keep going, right? Family. Family is not that big of a deal. Friends are more important than family. You didn't learn that from God's word. You learned that from the pagan peoples around you. Politics. That's the solution to everything. You didn't learn that from God's word, right? Authority. It's always bad. I should constantly be suspicious of it. Not from the word, from the world. Children. Oh, I can't live my life if I have children. Didn't get that from God's word. We could just go all the way. Vocation, freedom, marriage and singleness, Christian worship. In each of these areas and in many others, God speaks clearly in his word. And yet the world may be shouting so loud in our ears that we cannot hear God's voice as he speaks to us. Let me be clear, friends. These blind spots that are coming to us from the world, they don't just come from one part of the world. I know the church we're in, we're all a bunch of conservatives. Right? We feel like, yeah, Sean, tell them the, those liberal blind spots. Yeah, we've got to watch out for that. Well, yeah, but also blind spots from the right. There are conservative blind spots as well. And they may be more dangerous because the punch that hurts the worst is the punch that you don't see coming. There has never been, there never will be a Christian, a, a pastor or a leader, a church, a denomination, or a movement without a blind spot. I think, therefore, that wisdom would lead us in all humility to ask the Lord to reveal our blind spots to us sooner rather than later, so that in the future, Christians aren't looking back at us and having to say, how do how they get that, as we do with some of our Christian heroes? The fourth point of application is worldview formation. I'm not going to give you a big old dry definition of worldview. I'm just going to ask you some questions, and all these questions are worldview questions. Who is God? How should God be worshipped? Who am I? Who is good? What is good? What is not good? Why should I be good? How can I be good? What should most fundamentally shape our responses to these questions is the Word of God. If that's true, then the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how can I make sure that my worldview is being shaped more by the God who created this world than the God of this world? In his book, now discontinued, How to Reach the West Again, Tim Keller says this, The crisis we face is this. Secular culture has created an enormously powerful, constantly immersive moral ecology 
And they've done so through the digital revolution that overwhelms the two or three hours a week that Christians spend worshiping and in Bible studies. The amount of time we spend on our phones in a day, the number of images and videos and repetitive slogans we see, it all engages the imagination with narratives. It makes the influence and consumption of TV, already a concern a generation ago, look tiny by comparison. Those consuming digital content are being catechized, excuse me, catechized for far more hours in a week and far more effectively than most of what the church is doing. It would not be going too far to call it brainwashing of the type seen in George Orwell's 1984. Here's his argument. The secular news media, entertainment and arts, academia, politics, they all come together to create in us, if we are not careful, a worldview that will teach us nothing less than a thousand false gospels. A false gospel about who we are, about who God is, about what God wants from us. This is the hostile culture we live in. And I want to be clear, brothers and sisters, I am not chicken little. I don't think that the sky is falling in America. The sky has already fallen. Do you not know that? You may not feel it because you live in the Bible Belt. And a lot of people who live in the Bible Belt, they don't live any place else. But I've lived every place else in America, and I can tell you, The sky has fallen. There is no such thing as Christian culture in America. We are all exiles in a foreign land. And in some ways, it's a really good thing because we were always exiles in a foreign land. It was just harder for us to see it. Now God has been cleared to reveal this truth to us, which means that the warnings that God gave to Israel as she was going into the land, as she was going to be surrounded by the nations, as he was trying to prevent them from being influenced by the nations and their worldview, those warnings are just as relevant to us today as they were to the people of Israel then. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, They do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. Now, speaking of things that the Lord hates, let's go to our fifth point of application, abortion. You saw in the Leviticus uh, reading earlier that the people in the ancient Near East, they would offer their children up as live sacrifices to the god Moloch. Here's the way that they would do it. You would go up to the shrine. There'd be this massive image of the god Moloch. I won't describe to you in detail what he looks like. But there'd be this massive shrine and there'd there'd be a big boiling cauldron built into the shrine. Well, there'd be a cauldron. And then they would build a fire under the cauldron. They'd fill it with water. They'd get it boiling. They'd say their prayers to Moloch. Oh, please bless our land with fertility. And then they'd throw their children in there and burn them alive. This is what was influencing Jephthah as he did what he did, as he sacrificed his daughter. It was a different manifestation, but the same thing. 
And if you're sitting there thinking, well, Sean, yeah, that was terrible, but it was also like a really long time ago. And haven't we progressed morally as a civilization since then? I mean, haven't human beings come a long way since we threw children in boiling pots of water to be burned alive? Well, no, we haven't. Here's a description of something called a saline abortion that you can get right here in the state of Alabama. Saline in high concentration is injected into the woman's abdomen. The saline concentration is enough to abort a child due to its toxicity. It burns soft tissues, even skin. In the womb, unborn babies are accustomed to opening their mouths and routinely drink of the amniotic fluid that surrounds them. Upon ingestion of this saline solution, the saline attacks the membrane tissues along the digestive tract and the lungs. As pertaining to its toxicity in the body, it can cause seizures and hemorrhaging of the brain and other organs. It is an awful way to die and can often take several hours. In the text that we read earlier, we saw that God hates human sacrifice. And friends, we should too. And not only should we hate the act of the sacrifice, but we should also be incredibly intolerant of those who would say that it is okay. God says that his face is set against the one who kills children and against those who approve of the killing of children. Friends, if there's ever been any question where I stand about Christians who say that it's okay to have an abortion, let the confusion be dissolved right now. I have no confidence in their salvation. That they can improve of something that's so horrendously evil. Particularly the clergy that would make the argument that God loves us and therefore he wants us to be happy and we should kill our children. Anathema to that. In this morning's text, we see the tragedy of a daughter who died when she didn't have to. And we read this story and our hearts break. Our sense of justice is stirred, and it should be. But at least Jephthah's daughter got the chance to live. Now, the power dynamic between her warlord father was such that she felt like she probably couldn't resist him, and that's terrible. But at least she could have fled. She could have fought. She could have tried to negotiate. She could have tried a thousand different things. But what can an infant in the womb do when the forceps come to tear his head off of his body. What can he do? Nothing. Our hearts break over the innocent life taken in this text. But will our hearts break over the 629,898 reported abortions in the U.S. in 2019? Will our hearts break about the hundreds and thousands of babies aborted in 2018 or the hundreds of thousands of babies aborted in 2021? Will our sense of justice be stirred over the millions of babies who never got a chance to see the light of day because they were sacrificed to the pagan gods of comfort, prosperity, and sexual autonomy? However you feel about Jephthah, that should be magnified times a billion towards what's happening in our country before our very eyes. We're having a thousand conversations about justice and so much of it is so abstract. We're dealing with these arcane legal principles and, and maybe it could have been perceived as injustice. This is 
clear. It's happening right there, right down the road. You can go and the government will subsidize your killing of your child. There will be a band of people standing out in front of the clinic, volunteering, trying to get you out of your car and into the building without anyone trying to stop you. You'll be in there and they'll give you counsel. They'll say, oh, it's okay. You're going to feel guilt and anxiety. Don't feel that way. This is good. All of that is happening right down the road. I don't even know how to end this sermon. How do we get to the gospel from Jephthah? You know? How do we get to the cross from this terrible tragedy? It's, it's not immediately obvious to me. Hebrews 11 teaches us that Jephthah did have faith. You know? If so, it must have been the most mangled, crushed, scarred, weak, bruised, beat up faith of anyone in the whole Bible. One thing that I thought of as I was preparing the sermon this week was that there is more to the story of Jephthah than his terrible sin. When we come to a man's life in, in the scriptures, sometimes his sin can sort of fill the frame. And it's all that we can see, but who knows what might have happened with Jephthah after this. Maybe he repented. Maybe he lived out the rest of his life in faith and humility before the face of God. I don't know. I spent this week, some time this week, communicating with a fallen pastor, a friend of mine, who is a genuine brother, but he messed up big time. And he's been removed from the ministry. His, his church is crushed. He's crushed. His family is crushed. And I'm, I'm trying to sit there and think, what can I say to this brother who I really think is a Christian, who's really brokenhearted over a sin? What can I say to him that will comfort him? And then Jephthah came to my mind. In God's providence, I've been studying Jephthah all week. And so what I told this brother was that our legacies are bigger than our failures. Even when our failures seem to fill the frame. When I think about Jephthah, I think about some of my friends in the Roman Catholic Church. Friends that I know believe in Jesus. Friends that I know believe the true gospel, but for whatever reason have chosen to, to stay in that false church. My heart breaks for them, but when I think about Jephthah, I think that there's hope for them. Because, friends, the reason why we're not Roman Catholic is because we believe in justification by faith alone. We believe that even the tiniest fleck, just not even a mustard seed, you just shave off a millionth of a centimeter from the top of a mustard seed, that is enough faith. If it is true faith in a true God and the true gospel, that is enough faith to save. And so when I think about Jephthah, I hold out hope. When I think about Jephthah, I hold out hope for the many saints in church history who have ministries and lives that are as pockmarked as the face of a smallpox survivor. I think of them and I hope. But I think the best way to end would be this. I don't want to spend the rest of our time talking about Jephthah. Rather, I would want to spend the rest of our time uh, in honoring his daughter. You see, Jephthah's daughter, she loved her father 
The text goes out of its way to show you that, right? She comes out. She's so glad to see her dad. She's got the tambourine. She's dancing. I love you, dad. I miss you. I'm so glad you're here. And I can just imagine Jephthah with his fallacious reasoning trying to explain to his daughter why she had to die. For the victory of Israel. For, for my prominence in the land. Isn't this what's best for our family? But of course, none of that was true, right? Jephthah's daughter didn't have to die for Israel. But Jesus did. Jephthah's daughter didn't have to die, but God's son did have to die. Like Jephthah's daughter, Jesus was pure and innocent. Like Jephthah's daughter, Jesus loved his father and wanted to please him. Like Jephthah's daughter, Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for the salvation of God's people. But unlike Jephthah's daughter, if Jesus would not have allowed his life to be given in sacrifice, if he would not have had that eternal covenant with the Father to give up his life for the sake of the people, no one would be saved. You see, friends, there are several reasons why God hates human sacrifice. But perhaps one of the, one of the main ones is because of how utterly useless it is. You see, no human life can be given to save the life of another human or another group of humans because all human life is corrupted by sin. You can't save from sin with more sin. You can't clean up with filth on your hands. There's only one human sacrifice that God finds acceptable, and that is the human life that is pure and blameless, which is why I think in the in the virginity of Jephthah's daughter, we see a shadow of Christ. Her virginity is a symbol of the purity of the one who would later come and voluntarily lay down his life to save Israel. The sacrifice of Jephthah was blood spilled in vain. The sacrifice of God was blood spilled for a purpose. Jephthah's daughter saved no one. Jesus will save all who come to him and repentance, and faith. Let's pray. Father God, our, our hearts have been weighed down by your word, but we know that even when we lament, even when sorrow is heavy in our hearts, that you lift us up. You lift us up with the beautiful promises of the gospel, not only for ourselves, but also for the entire family of Christ. You are a good father. You have never failed us. And so we, we ask God that you would help us to respond to you with sincere praise now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.